Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. I'm really excited to talk with this guy. He is an author, of course, uh, and a uh, universal basic income advocate, author of Let There Be Money. Let me welcome to the show, Scott Santons. Hello. Hi, Karen. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for coming in. Uh, you, you write in the introduction, in the beginning, man said, let there be money, and there was. Centuries later, March 27th, 2020, the United States passed into law the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. And with the stroke of a pen, over $2 trillion was spent without first taxing or borrowing from anyone. Make that make sense. Yeah, I was talking with um, Ida Henrys, who's going to you know, be here more frequently helping people navigate this space. And she said that there was the greatest exchange of wealth during this, this period of time. More people got more money than ever in the history of time. And a lot of folks got left out and left behind. The rich got richer. Those who knew knew they got it and others did not. Talk about why you started there with the $2 trillion exchange. Yeah, um, it, it's it, it all comes down to to money and and thinking about money and the way we think about money, and I think there's just a lot of confusion about even what money is and the way people talk about it as it being like this this real thing that you like you have to have money in order to spend money, and it's all about like money itself instead of really thinking about what is money like it's a it's a tool. I, I like to think of it too as like um talking about inches or something. And so we think like, you know, we don't ask, do we have enough inches to build a house? Like the question is, do you have enough wood and the workers and the metal and the resources, like all that stuff that need for a house? You don't say, do we have enough inches? But when it comes to money, we're always talking about, do we have enough money for this? Do we have enough money for that? Instead of asking, can we actually do these things? Like, is there enough food? Is there enough resources for housing? And that's the that's the big question. So when it came to the coronavirus and like our response to it, we just did it. We just spent the money because that's what the government can do. The government creates money and that's a, every time it spends money, it's creating it into existence. And that's what we did. And then as far as taxes go, it's not taxes don't f- make spending possible. It just pulls money out of the economy so that more spending is possible without inflation. And it's like, that's the trick is that people think that you have to have money first, the government taxes first and then spends, but really it's that the government spends and then taxes the money out. And that kind of, that, that lack of understanding of how money works, I think is kind of central to a lot of like the blocks that we have as to what we can actually accomplish that we aren't. What's your background? I'm sorry. sorry. I just want to know, like, you know, how did you arrive at this? Did you, you know, you go to school and it's like economics and, you know, because I remember taking a few (laughs) economics classes and my eyes glazed over and I was like, I don't know how this relates to me at all. This sucks. And I didn't do very well in those classes, but I'm great in business. I'm sure. No, but I'm really good at managing, you know, the ins and outs now, you know, like it's, you know, so, so clearly I think they want to keep us confused. Yeah, uh, that's that's. I feel it's certainly certainly part of it, and it's even you know not so much a like a a they as in like a you know some kind of purposeful thing. I think it's just that we've done this for so long that it's just how it is. You know, you're born into this world, and and you have to accumulate money in order to spend it to live, and we all just think that's normal, and you know it's just how things are, and it's really hard for people to think about how different things can be 
and if the way things are is like the just way of being and we have to like break through that uh how i actually got into this was actually back in 2013 through um, the automation argument and this was like back before anyone was really talking about the impact of artificial intelligence and robots on like work and um, I got into this as in thinking about what is going to happen when it comes to a more automated world and the solution that that uh, I found was this idea of an unconditional universal basic income and that was new to me uh, and it was really interesting, and I, I studied the, the history of it and uh, the the various pilots that already existed, the pilots that are even ongoing, and the philosophy behind it, the reasoning, the justifications. And then I also got into even you know the details of the current existing safety net. And learning all of that was just new, and, and, and I realized that basic income isn't just like this potential possibility for like the future of work but it's really something that should have existed decades if not centuries ago at our founding when even thomas Paine was talking about a version of it wow it it feels like um because I'm, I'm running in my head the arguments that i could hear against universal basic income the oh this is america and we pull ourselves up from our by our bootstraps and it feels like that sort of flies in the face of that kind of mentality. And so when you talk about unlocking what's, you know, that that mentality and how do we get there? That's the big question in my mind. How do you get, like Karen said, how, do, how is it that not everybody can be okay? You know, some people are working as hard as other people, but just without as much access or they didn't have the leg up that you had or what have you. So how do we get there? Yeah, I think one of the stumbling blocks for us is um, what's known as the just world hypothesis, which is that, you know, good things happen to good people for making good decisions and bad things happen to bad people for making bad decisions. And so you look at someone in poverty and you're like, well, look at them. They deserve that. They did. They're lazy. They've made bad mistakes. Like, where look where I am. Like, I'm everything's going great for me. So I'm making good decisions and I'm a good person. And all it takes, of course, is something to happen and everything can change for someone. And then at that point, they're like, oh, well, I'm different. Like, you know, this wasn't my choice. This happened to me and that's just you know, bad luck. Um, so it's always different the way we look at our own circumstances and our own decisions versus other people's. And so I think that that's part of it. And there's a, a certain defense mechanism to it. Like if everything's going great and other people are, are not doing great, then it's because of your own decisions and you, you'll just keep making good decisions. You don't have to worry about those bad things happening because you aren't going to make bad decisions. So as long as you blame people for whatever circumstances they're in, then it makes you feel like more secure and safer <laughs> in your own circumstances. Ah, that's just back to the frailty wow. of human, human beings. Instead of working on ourselves, it's so easy. It's much easier to point a finger, but there's a scripture about that. Don't remove the splinter from someone's eyes when you're walking <laughs> around with a giant tree log. Uh, we're talking with Scott S Santons. Uh, the book is Let There Be Money. And you, you know, you're breaking down what is money. It's an exchange. Before in Africa, it was cowrie shells. Then it was, you know, the exchange was gold. When gold became too heavy, they, they did the fiat of paper money, but it was backed by gold. So you know that the gold was somewhere, but this paper gave you a uh, tinder and it allowed you to say, I know this is backed. And then in the 70s, we don't need to be backing it. We have nuclear weapons, so we don't have to back nothing. 
nothing. We just going to print the money. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what actually happened, but here we are now printing $2 trillion during coronavirus. And again, the exchange of wealth, the wealthy people got so much more. The, the folk at the top got so much more wealthy during the pandemic. And now they have the audacity to lay people off. Make that make sense, Scott. Make that make sense. Yeah the the way that we um, the way that we responded to the pandemic was I would say was better than the way they responded back in the real estate crisis and the Great Recession that followed. Uh, we actually made sure that people got money this time and that was distributed widely instead of only going to the top in the form of like quantitative easing. Uh, but this time we did both. And so quantitative easing, quantitative easing is something that's that's great for the rich. I mean, that uh, helps the stock market expand and uh, people were able to convert that even to to uh, buying up more housing and, you know, their stocks just flew up. And, yeah, that generated a, a lot of wealth. Um, it's unfortunate that uh, that they let QE go on for so long. I think that only exacerbated inequality. And uh, I think it's also unfortunate that that we, even though we did the right thing with stimulus payments, um, and, and even six months of the child tax credit, which is also an amazing policy, uh, still people now because it was in a pandemic, because we're seeing inflation now, people look at this and go, "Oh, well, that caused inflation," and people just blame it. And there's so much partisanship and polarization in this too, where you know you just look at this from a "Does this help my guy? Does this help my team? Or does it help their team?" kind of argument. And so it's in the interest of you know one side to blame the other side for this, and the other side for to say no, 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 it's you know you did this and, and your decisions that you made. So it's really it's even more messed up with how hyperpolarized everything is. It's mm -hmm. so much more difficult to have like a really complex, nuanced conversation about what did cause uh, the inflation that we're seeing. How do we avoid it in the future? Because it's all just like, no, let's just play the blame game. <laughs> because that's easier to fit in 140 characters on a tweet um, yeah. or 280 or whatever it is. So a couple of weeks ago uh, on this show, Karen interviewed a woman named Jasmine Crow. Um, and she she was doing these amazing things by feeding um, people who were, you know, houseless um and were kind of down on their luck and whatever and she started this as one one person and what the one of the things that she said that stuck with me was she was saying it's really not about scarcity it's that the, there is enough food there is enough that it was really about logistics is there an argument that could be made for that with regard to like universal basic income i mean there is enough right is there enough for us to all be at a level where we we're not struggling, we're not going to the emergency room when we're super super sick. We are able to afford healthcare. Is there enough for us? Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's not that there's a scarcity of resources. That there's there's a scarcity of of kindness and 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 will, political will especially. Um, it uh, we have we have plenty. One way to look at this is. If you go back to the 1970s, this is where uh, productivity decoupled from wages. And so prior to the 1970s, productivity rose with wages. And then in the 70s, that split, productivity kept rising, and then wages stagnated all the way till now, for the most part. 
And there was a calculation done to see, you know, what uh, if if inequality had not grown, if productivity had continued rising with wages, um, what would that look like? And so the difference is that $50 trillion would have actually flowed to the bottom 90% instead of mostly to the top 1%. And mm-hmm. everyone now would be earning about an extra $1,300 per month um, what? from productivity. And wow. so we have enough. And we if we had started a UBI back then, and it, it would have been very small, and it would have just grown to you know $1,300 a month now, and that's how you know i think that's a good sign of saying well of course we have enough because you know we actually productivity is continuing to grow and it's only going to continue to grow and we're just not spreading it around it's just concentrating more and more at the top and it's it's mm. crazy to actually look just how much is concentrating at the top um like even breaking out the top 1% or the 1% of the 1% compared to everybody else it's just it's massively massive inequality and um yeah we 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 have plenty of food we have uh, especially plenty of food we waste about 40% of our food supply and yet you know we have plenty of food in stores and there's people going to food banks and trying to get food because they can't afford it during the pandemic it, we did the wise thing of saying let's make sure people have some money to go to the store and buy food and uh, because we had mass we saw massive lines of cars that are miles long to get food even though we had plenty of food so obviously there's enough it's that our, our distribution system is broken down and our distribution mechanism is employment and there's just not enough money flowing to people through the employment mechanism and I, that's why i think ubi is so important not only for poverty alleviation but also for it to address the massive inequality to make sure that the middle class also increases their incomes and also their security because it's not only about lack of resources but a lack of of security of feeling that you know everything's going to be okay and there's big impacts from people feeling stressed out all the time and worried about everything and that feeds into you know it feeds into health it feeds into crime it feeds into even our political polarization polarization Scott Santons is here. Um, the book is Let There Be Money. How, how'd you get radicalized, sir? What, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> um, again, I got into this uh, through the automation angle back a decade ago. And it's just the more I looked into all of this, then it just the the firmer and firmer. And, and So there wasn't it, a, it a case important. or a story because, you know, we, we've talked, of course, Stockton, uh, California did it and it was successful. And then they voted out the mayor that ushered it in, which was bizarre to me. Y'all got basic income, it worked, and then you replaced the person that made it happen. So do people really want the help? And I, and was there one story where you're like, this needs to be my crusade, this is gonna be my crusade, I'm gonna take up this flag? Gosh, um, it's, it's it, when I think of the um, like kind of powerful stories uh, like one of the the first experiments that I looked into was actually the Namibia pilot. Um, that was a the, so that was a full village, about a thousand people um, in Namibia, and they received a basic income. Uh, everyone in the village for a year, and there was one story that always sticks out to me. Uh, besides just like all of the flourishing that happened in the village as a result of this. Um, but there was a woman who used the money 
to um, start up her own business and she was baking baked goods. She went out and bought like flour and yeast with her first payment and uh, started baking goods. And her business succeeded just massively. And she became like, a, you know, the did the best of everyone there in, in the village. And so it wasn't only the fact that she like had an idea and she wanted to be able to do this. You know, she was prevented from doing it before she had the money. It functioned as capital. But it wasn't only it, the sex success of this wasn't only because of her great idea and her working to do this. It was because everyone in the village had money in order to actually pay for what she was making. So it was both sides of that, that you need to actually have an idea in the capital and then people actually you have to have customers. And so just imagine thinking just all the ideas that are out there, all the people with with ideas that they want to make possible, but they lack the capital. And even if they had it they wouldn't have the customers because people just don't have enough disposable income to spend on these other things. So just thinking about just how transformative that could be for people to be able to pursue what it is that they feel is most important for them, not only paid, but unpaid too, that there's so much unpaid care work. There's so much volunteering that's prohibited from people being unable to afford to do those things. So I just think that just imagining a world where people are free to do what they think is most important instead of being in jobs that they feel are even harmful to society or to themselves is a different world. I, and I just think that I, I really want that world to happen. Me too. I mean, I, I've been, I've worked for myself for a long time. And when you're self-employed, it's, it's, you know, it's a scary world out here when you're, you know, going from gig to gig or health insurance or, or what have you. And I, I think about how the um, uh, alleviating that constant money uh, struggle, what that would do for my own creativity, you know, so it's, it's, it's like when you're, you can't be worried about and trying to make these beautiful grand things when you're playing small because you have to play small you got to pay the rent or you got to you know you got to eat i mean those are things obviously we all have to do but i just think about how much your creativity and your health and your happiness suffers when you're stressed about money yeah yeah people people always worried about basic income and and ask you know Oh, how many people will stop working? Will ever, won't everybody stop working when they get a basic income? And and the question is, how much work is not being done because people lack a basic income and, mm -hmm. and lack basic economic security? How many? How much more work could be done? How much work are we missing out on because of these barriers? You know, the, there's this belief that people should pick themselves up by their bootstraps, but you know, as the as even uh, Dr. King said, you know, you can't tell a bootless man to to pick himself up by his bootstraps. He needs a pair of boots. So that's what basic income is. So you got to make sure that people have some money to start with. They can go out and buy a pair of boots, you know, yes. give them at least that. And then once people have that basic starting amount, have that floor, then that's just changes everything. And what we're looking at is just like it's like we built a civilization on top of sand and mm. now we're complaining about the stuff that's crumbling apart and it's like well yeah we built it without a foundation ah oh, that is the american way and then you <laughs> myth you throw myth on top of that and then you blame the people why you know that just came here scott santon's uh the book is let there be money i, I want to continue this conversation as i look at the time um what can we do right now with our lawmakers like we're you know, because I feel like when we, you know, I was talking earlier about the inhumanity. I don't know if it's inhumanity or racism or if racism comes out of inhumanity, you know, but we have to tackle this, this lack of, of 
empathy that people have for one another. And your somebody, your neighbor's success is not your failure. And this whole kill my neighbor's cow because I don't have one mentality that we have has to stop. It is killing us globally. So I'm, I'm grateful that you're showing cases in Namibia and India and around the world where it's working, Stockton, California, where it's working. But how do we get the lawmakers? Because it's got to be passed, you know, and, and it's state by state. I think, is it Massachusetts has a pilot program as well? Like there's some different places that are doing some pilot programs, but we need this across federally, across the country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's been over... Um a hundred mayors that have joined the mayors for guaranteed income. And there's been over, I believe, uh, uh, at least 50 pilots that have been launched or ongoing um, so far, many more to go. Um, I like to point out too, that there is actually a state that has a universal basic income and it's Alaska. And they've actually had a UBI since 1982. So it's an annual UBI every year, every single person in Alaska, and this is all adults and children, everybody, rich or poor, everyone gets the same amount. Um, that's their annual dividend. And I, I think that that's possibly the, the framing that will work is that instead and yet of Anchorage people... is one of the most dangerous places in the country. <laughs> Just had to point that out. All right. That's crazy. Yeah. And actually it's a uh, uh, property crime actually goes down every time that the uh, dividend checks go out. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting to even look at what the impact has been like uh, another analysis like work. So that uh, part-time employment has increased 17% since they started issuing the dividend and uh, there's been no negative impact on full-time employment. So again, it shows that people work more once they have this floor underneath them. Yeah. Um, but I think that dividend framing is important. And I think that that's, where we're actually going to get some movement and it's going to be tied to the AI conversation. So here we are and, you know, people are inherently, you know, self selfish, let's say in, in a lot of these, at least if you're against basic income and you're not already looking at this from a poverty alleviation, inequality reduction kind of importance, you're saying, Oh, we don't need that, whatever. Um, I'm going to be fine. Well, as soon as there's a concern that you might be automated out of a job, then suddenly you're more open to something like this. And I think if instead of looking at this like a safety net of saying, oh, because of you might be losing your job to AI at some point in the immediate future, um, we should have a, a safety net as a floor underneath you. I, I think part of it that could win as an argument is saying, look, why, how is it that AI is so capable? It's capable because these large language models and these large models and these large transformers have actually been trained off of basically the entire internet. Like everything we've written, everything that we've created, all the images have gone into these models as in the form of just massive amounts of data. And we all made that possible. Like my own writing is in these models. My, my I helped train the models myself and that's true for everybody else. So we should look at the benefits of this as something that goes to all of us. Scott, let's continue this conversation uh, and let's start breaking down where it works and how we can systematically institute this. Let there be money. Check out the book. Scott Santons, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate you. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Karen. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.